Can you put that uh, last slide up of the last song we just were singing? Not to throw the guys into a conniption up there, but I did not realize this, but that is what I am speaking about tonight. When, when does that happen? What is that talking about? That's what we're talking about tonight. First Corinthians 15. Last week, it was our joy as a congregation to really press into, to dial into the essence of the gospel. And we did so from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, in what I called the molecular gospel. The irreducible, essential truths that save, what are they? There are a lot of things that people can disagree on, debate about, but when it comes right down to it, what what is the irreducible core? The molecular gospel. And Paul gives that in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So we see right here, Paul including in the essence of the gospel, the resurrection. And resurrection is what this entire chapter is about. And the argument that Paul is making here is that resurrection is not just a nice idea, a little addendum to the story. Oh, by the way, after he died on the cross, you might be interested to know that he also was raised from the dead. Isn't that a nice thought? No, it is part and parcel of the truths that save. It is the gospel, a necessary component, the molecular gospel. Tonight what we're doing is we are exchanging our microscopes for telescopes, and we are zooming out from the molecular level all the way out to the big, massive, huge, what I'm calling cosmic, the cosmic gospel, the big story within which Even the molecular gospel finds its place. Did you know there is an overarching drama? An overarching narrative. Something big that is going on. The big story of redemption. In fact, I could have entitled this message, The Story of Everything. The Story of Everything. Everything you can come up with finds its place in what I'm going to tell you tonight. And of course, this is what is true of all great stories, where you have stories within stories. And uh, think of, think of the, our, our cultural favorite stories, and you'll know that this is true. For example, uh, we have the tin man finding out that he actually does have a heart, right? Now, that is a subplot to the big story, which is... Dorothy making her way back home to Kansas. Or uh, we have Luke Skywalker and Anakin Skywalker, also known as Darth Vader, who are uh, in this extremely dysfunctional father-son relationship, to say the least. Uh, And so you could say, boy, Star Wars, it's all about Uh, It's all about that. Well, that's a subplot to the big story, which is this struggle, good versus evil, and and all the rest. To me, the best example that I can think of, and this, I think, is part of the appeal of, of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and why so many of us, maybe not you, but I would firmly be in the camp thinking it's like the greatest thing ever, uh, cinematographically speaking, uh, that... That you have within this mega story, you have all of these wonderful sub stories that are that are going on, and so uh, there's a little there's a little something for everybody in the story. So you have Frodo and Sam and their friendship, and that's a cool sort of subplot to the story. And and uh, for the ladies, there's uh, Aragorn and Eowyn and their and their romantic love thing that's going on, and and you have. Uh, uh, the lust for power and fear and courage and all of these themes that, that, that are kind of a, like a, a patchwork of sub-narratives that are a part of the grand narrative, which is the struggle against Sauron and his desire to rule the world. 
Now, if you took any of those subplots and, and said that's really what the that's the big story, it would be you would you would be uh, making more of it than it ought to be, and you would be missing what the really big thing is. If if you know what Lord of the Rings, it's all about romance. Okay, you didn't see the movies uh, then, and uh, so you see what I'm saying is that in fact these sub stories find their proper meaning and significance only as they relate to the overarching story. Are you with me tonight? Okay. All right. So, Jesus saving his people, which we studied last night, the molecular, or last week, the molecular gospel, is a glorious, wonderful, amazing, fantastic, worthy of worship, worthy of delighting in, sub-story to the overarching story. And if you think that is the story, well, then suddenly the whole thing becomes about us. What's Christianity about? about? It's all about us and Jesus saving us from our sins. Oh, no. Now, that is true and glorious and wonderful. Emphasis on that. But it is not the big story. There is a bigger story even than the massive story of that that defines the meaning of that and ultimately the meaning of everything. And this is what I am calling the cosmic gospel, the cosmic good news, the big story, which is this, the unfolding drama of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It is all about God. And within that triune God, those relationships and the unveiling of glory, the glory of the Son, so that in everything he might be preeminent, Colossians 1, 18. And this is now what Paul unfolds for us because he wants to put that molecular gospel that he's just got done explaining into its proper, broader Glorious, fantastic, Saturday night encouraging story that we have the delight and the privilege tonight to look at. And I want it to be that tonight because there is no story, there is no news, there is no gospel more glorious than the one we have in front of us tonight. And I told you last week that I can only hope to faintly do this justice. It's not even going to be close. It's not even going to be close because I don't even understand it. It's way beyond me. Okay? It's way beyond me. So with that introduction, let's look now, beginning in verse 22, chapter 15. This is what Paul writes. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What is that talking about? Well, that's what our subject is tonight. And there is so much here. It's, it's, it's kind of like, I don't even know what it's like. It's just, it's, there's so much here. We have resurrection. You have kingdom. There's rule and reign, consummation. But the key to all of this is to focus on what is going on between God the Father and God the Son. This divine narrative. And I just want to make sure we all are kind of understanding what this is about. God, the Bible presents God as one, but also three. That's why we call him the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And that God, in his triunity, existed before anything else. Before there was anything, there was God in eternity past. And this relationship is a relationship. They are, they are persons. They relate to one another. 
And in the prequel to this story, if they were to do a movie, you know, the prequels that they're doing these days, if there was a prequel to the story that we're looking at, it would be that in eternity past, God the Father purposed everything that is. Everything that would happen, everything in the entire story of the universe and the story of man and the story of redemption, God purposed all of it. Ephesians 1.11, everything is working out uh, in conformity with the purpose of his will. This is not a random world that we are living in. The earthquake in Japan was not a random thing. Nor is the earthquake that you experienced in your life this week. Everything is in conformity with the purposes of God in the mystery of his will in eternity past. Well, part of that purposing was that God the Father purposed and somehow communicated in the mysteries of the Godhead to the Son everything that the Son would do to gain our redemption and everything else I'm going to talk about here tonight. He purposed that. And God the Son, in willing obedience and subjection to the Father, not as anything less, he is co-equal with the Father, but in the function of their relationship, he is in submission to the Father. He willingly and gladly obeyed. And so God creates the universe. He creates mankind. Adam and Eve sin. God says... Uh, to Adam and to Eve and to Satan, you're all under a curse. And he says to the entire world, this entire creation is not what it was now. It is under a curse. And death enters into the world. And this sets in motion then both God's justice, which is to condemn, and he has to condemn sin and all unrighteousness. But it also sets in motion the expression of his mercy. And all of the things that he purposed, in eternity past, that the Son would do in order to procure the redemption of mankind and to restore everything that was lost in the fall. So all of these things, like a domino, starts going on, one after another. And so, the molecular gospel captures a portion of this story by describing how 2,000 years ago, God the Son, in obedience to the Father, becomes a baby. And lives on this earth. And he died for our sins. Here's the molecular gospel. He died, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. There you have that little segment of the story. But there is so much more that is going on here. Again, it would, it's, it's like watching a movie, uh, the Lord of the Rings and thinking it's all about the love story. It's more than that. And there is much more than that. On a cosmic level, what is going on here is that God the Father, God the Son and the Spirit, are engaged in a battle, in a war against their enemies. And God has enemies. They include Satan. They include all of the fallen angels that went with Satan in the rebellion. They include... uh Every vain philosophy, every false religion, it includes every human being who is not in submission to Jesus as their Lord, the Bible describes as an enemy of God. And it includes death itself. So on a cosmic level, just beyond our view, most of it, there is this struggle that is going on. And Christ came in a ministry of destroying and restoring. Remember that. Destroying and restoring. In the fall, paradise was lost. In the cross, paradise was found. And someday, paradise will be completely restored. And the whole earth will be filled with his glory. What are we talking about there? Well, this is where Paul picks up then this cosmic gospel at the, at the purpose of Jesus' resurrection in this story. Notice again what he says in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ. And by the way, i got to stop right now. We're kind of telling a story here, okay? And some of this is chronological as best we can determine it, but we're kind of telling a story here. And we're picking it up now from the point of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So the first thing that we see here in this story, in terms of God's destroying and restoring, is that Jesus is the first. He was the first one that was resurrected. But the text here says, Christ first, then us. And notice, notice what, how it, it describes Jesus. Christ the first fruits. First fruits. Now, in an, in a agricultural society like 2000 years ago, much more than today, this is a word that would connect with them. Although we are living here in Indiana. So, you drove, you drove by a few cornfields on your way here, and I'd have to think that probably means that you understand a little bit about what first fruits is all about. But just imagine with me, if you will, just so we get this concept, what is a first fruit? Imagine with me that you're a farmer right here in good old Indiana, not in Crown Point, but maybe out in the sticks a little bit. Um, and you're a farmer out there, and, and uh, it's, uh, I don't know, let's say that it's August-ish, somewhere in there. And it's a, uh, it's a morning, and you, you, you wander into the, uh, the local uh, diner there in the little town with the big grain bin and elevator and all that. Can you visualize this with me, Hoosiers? All right. And you, want, you, want, you wander into the, into the, uh, the diner, and, and there's some of your farmer uh, pals, and you sit down with them, and you order your coffee, and it's not very long in sitting with a group of farmers where somebody asks you this, how's she looking? And you say, who, my wife? And he goes, no, I could care less about that. How's she looking? How's the field? How's the field looking? And you say, she's looking good. (laughs) Really? What makes you so sure? Just pulled my first cobs this week. They were strong. Full kernels. Good color. Looks like a really good yield. Because if the first cob's good, the rest will be strong. Now, I don't know if you knew it, but farmers actually in the winter months play gunslingers and westerns. <laughs> <laughs> the first fruit... The character of the first fruit is an indication of everything that's going to follow in that harvest. Christ is the first fruit in terms of restoration. He was dead and he was raised back to life. And in this, he is the prototype For everybody who follows after him. Jesus first, then all who belong to Christ. All who are believers and followers of Jesus will be raised back to life. And we may say, well then, when when is that going to happen? Notice what the text says. At his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now right now, the eschatology types here are getting all wrapped up in what the order is and this, that, and the other. Don't throw, put your charts away and just enjoy what Paul is saying here. He is saying that Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back at that moment, there will be a resurrection like his. He was first fruit. It will be at that moment that all of us will be raised from the dead. 
Now, you might be here like going, wow, that sounds awesome. And it is. And you might be wondering, what's the body going to be like? And what's it going to be like when that happens? And what's my body? How are we going to function all eternity? Oh, here's what I can tell you. Keep coming to the resurrection series here and you're going to find out. That's not the point right now, but it's the rest of the chapter. It's coming up. little advertisement for the coming weeks. Here's what I can tell you, though. Take a look at your body right now. In fact, you might want to take a moment. It's Saturday night. You know I like to throw in funny things on Saturday night sometimes that makes it worth coming on Saturday night. We have a man in our church who owns a tuxedo shop, and he told me the story. He had a, a little a young woman that uh, was measuring a man for his like waistline and for his suit coat, and he said this is an honest story. Uh, uh, the, the, the girl gave him one end of the tape measure and said to the guy, I'll be right back. And uh, so... <laughs> I'll be right back. Uh, Look at your body. Here's what I can tell you. Your body is about to go through an extreme makeover. Of the cosmic, eternal, glorified kind. We'll get into more about that. But I just, how, how many of that sounds good to you? Okay, look at that body. That sounds good. All right. Amen. Now notice how the text continues. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now let's take this apart and let's take it in order. He doesn't present it in order, but we're going to take it in order here. Then comes the end. And this is not the end of all things because there is no end of all things in eternal life. This is the consummation of redemption. At the end of all of this, at the end of all of the drama, on this cosmic scale. But what must happen first? Notice it says, he must reign until all his enemies are under his feet. So we are in then this time, this era, what I'm calling, and this is a hairy title, but it's the best one I could come up with, the provisional reign of the mediatorial king. The provisional reign of the mediatorial king. Yes, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, but that death and resurrection had cosmic implications more than simply saving you from hell. Massive implications here. It was nothing short of God's decisive victory in this cosmic battle between God and his enemies. And indeed, friends, God has enemies. And by the way, so do we. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 6 this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness there's a vivid terminology against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places and i just want to reiterate just out of our view no doubt right here in this room tonight there is a spiritual battle that is going on between god and his purposes if i could say it that way and the enemy who seeks to destroy like a prowling, roaring lion. There is this battle that is going on between God and Satan, between God and demons, between God and the kingdom of darkness. And that includes all of the mischief that Satan has been doing for all of these years and is currently doing in our culture and in our uh, city and community and no doubt in our homes here tonight. He is battling against the good that God would intend for us. In fact, I would add one more realm that he is doing this in, within, within the human heart. As he seeks to mislead and tempt and subtly create idols and get us off track, he is battling against God. He hates God and he hates us. And this is summarized in verse 24 as a battle. And here's where this battle is going on. In every rule and authority and power. Now, 
That's where the battle's going on, but we need to realize that there is no place in this universe where God is not God. He is ruling, He is reigning, He is, He has all authority. And God is in the process of destroying the work of Satan and restoring the glory of paradise lost. This whole universe was made to reflect his glory. And God will not let death or Satan have the final word over any of it. Let me say that again. There is not one inch in this entire universe, seen and unseen, that God will allow Satan to have the final word, victory, anything that he may gloat over. No, not one inch. And that includes every crevice of your heart tonight, my friend. So he is destroying the work of Satan and restoring the glory of what he intended. And when we talk about enemies, there is no more, well, how can I say it? I started that wrong. There's no more challenging enemy than this one, death itself. Death is the last enemy, it says here. Death, in order for this whole thing to be restored, death has to be defeated. But here's the great question. How do you kill death? If death has to die, how do you kill death? Well, here's how. Take any war you've ever studied, any war that's ever happened. If you're gonna, if you're gonna defeat an enemy, you have to, you have to overcome its greatest weapon, don't you? And that's what God commissioned Jesus to do. When he came here, he was commissioned to come and to defeat the enemy's greatest weapon, which is death. Now, we talked about death last week. We're going to talk about it a little bit more now. And here's where we find, again, these kind of multiple narratives, sort of Lord of the Rings-esque kind of weaving their way together in this divine drama that God is working out. But for death to be killed, the cause of death had to be defeated. And what do we see last week as the cause of death? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So in order for death's impetus, its right to reign, to be taken away, the cause of it had to be taken away. Christ, here's the molecular gospel, died for our sins. And by doing that, he robs death of its energy. It's, there's a word there I'll get for tomorrow, but it's, you know what I'm saying? It's got its, its core, its per, it's, there's a word. What's the word? That. (laughs) That was eliminated when Christ died on the cross. Now the guilt has been removed. He's destroying and restoring. Now God can declare us righteous because the guilt has been removed. We're not righteous. We're still sinners. But Christ died for our sins, taking away the guilt. In the, in the, in the glory of justification, God declares us righteous anyway. Through Christ. But it is more than that, my friends. It is the removal of guilt, eliminating death's right to claim us in an ultimate sense. All these people have died. You drive by any graveyard, all these people that have died. Why can't they get out of the grave? They can't because death has an ultimate right over them. That has to be broken somehow. And here we find the amazing power and love of God to defeat and kill death. God, here's what God does. God has a plan for our bodies. Our salvation includes this physical body. And 
what God does is he, he kills death. And the way that he kills death, and I have an analogy here, actually. Here, here's how he does it. Imagine with me that, 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 that we're in a gigantic prison with huge walls, so high they just go up into the sky. Huge, thick walls. And every window, uh, and, 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 and it's huge, massive, you know, here's, here's the bars, they're like this. And, you know, for, for centuries we get at the bar and we just, you know, it's, we, we can't even budget. There's, there's no way out. We're, we're just stuck in this prison. And, and at the front of the prison there's this massive gate and the bars on the gate are huge and it's so heavy. And there is, on that gate, there is this massive, like the size of this room, padlock that's on the door. And we, you know, some wise guy gets up, oh, maybe I can do it. And it's like, you know, pushing on a column at the science and industry. You know, it's just huge. You can't move it. And we're just all in the despair. We can't get out. In order for us to get out, that lock had to be broken. It had to be overcome. But if it was overcome, not only would the person who broke it be able to get out of the prison so would everybody else behind him because now the door is swung open. And that is how God killed death. Jesus died. He was buried, the molecular gospel said. He was really, really dead. He was in the prison. But the love of God and the power of God extended down into that tomb in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And by the power of God, Jesus was raised back to life. And the reason that is so cosmically important is that anybody who gets out of the prison, the only way out is to break the lock. And Jesus broke the lock and was the first one out of the prison. But now death has been defeated. Its claim, its lock to us, is no longer absolute. Jesus first, then us. And my dear friend, Christian here, what that means is one day you're going to walk out of that gate. Just like Jesus did. Glorified body, resurrected, back to life. Never to go back to the prison again. The death of death, he overcame it. Next, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So after his resurrection, now there is this era, this time that we are presently in, that I'm calling the reign of the mediatorial king. We live in this provisional reign. We find out that it's going to come to an end someday. Uh, and Jesus is the king. In this time. Do you remember what he said in, in, in Matthew 28, right before the famous Great Commission? These are the words that Jesus said. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, what does that mean? It, well, here's what it doesn't mean. Every day he walked on earth, he was God. It doesn't mean that he got more power. He has always been uh, totally, completely, infinitely powerful and all the rest. Here's what it means. That upon Jesus' resurrection... God the Father deputized, delegated, granted full authority over every realm, physical or spiritual, that there is. Gave that authority as the Father to the Son. And, listen now, inaugurated a new era, a new kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. These are all words in the New Testament describing this new era where now Christ is king, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And he must reign. He must reign for the sheer glory and authority that is his as the resurrected risen son of God. It's much like uh, the old saying, where does the lion lay down? Anywhere he wants to. That's right. Uh, wherever a lion goes, by the sheer 
power and force of who he is as a lion, he is in control. And Christ is like that lion. He has absolute authority and power. And he is ruling and reigning now. Get it out of your mind that when Jesus comes back, that's when he's ruling and reigning. He is king now. He is Lord now. He is on his throne now. He has all authority now. All right? And the text says that he must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. All right? And that's the old ancient custom. It's the old ancient custom. Hey, wanted, oh, just come lay here right, real quick. Let me sh- I just want to demonstrate this. Just real quick. I don't have a lot of time. Lay down. All right. Here's the ancient custom. The king who conquered would put his feet on the conquered king, and it was symbolic that he is in complete submission to me. All right, go sit down. That was easy. (laughs) That was the ancient custom. He must reign until there is no longer anybody that he has not put under the sole of his foot, that he has conquered, that he is reigning over. So what is apparent then for us today? We live in this kind of the land of in-between, I think it's been called, where Christ is ruling and reigning, but you know what? You look around, it sure doesn't look like it, does it? Where we find our culture tanking morally and spiritually. We see people, friends and neighbors and loved ones who are not following Christ, who are not coming under his submission, who are living jolly well whatever way they want to live. And maybe you're here tonight. And we look around the world and we say, it would seem that Satan is winning. It would seem that maybe there isn't anything to this. This is one reason many people think we're foolish to be here tonight. Worshiping a Jesus in heaven who's ruling and reigning. Ha! It doesn't look like it to me. Oh, but we forget something so easily, don't we? We forget what was also promised. That someday... He's going to come back. And the fact that he's not come back yet, you want to know why he hasn't come back yet? Because he will not lose one of his sheep. And he died to save his people. And his patience means our salvation. So we shouldn't throw stones or be upset about this. This is a good thing. He's waiting and delaying until all have been saved and the time is right. But someday, my friends, our waiting will be over. Because the Bible says clearly, and Jesus in his own words said, that he is coming back. The king is coming back. Back. And here now we pick up the story, this cosmic story, because what's going to happen is he's ruling and reigning and the, 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 the gospel is going forth and people are submitting their hearts to him. And there are millions of us today and this weekend who will gather in churches all over the world who worship the king and our hearts are his and we are submitting to his authority. This is going and spreading by thousands and millions of people. But... Still the world is ruled by Satan and still the evil one is doing his thing. But in the cosmic story, here's what's going to happen. Someday, everyone's stunned. When Christ returns and Revelation, using very vivid picture, describes that moment this way. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 
on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here he comes. And every realm and every nation and every country and every heart that heretofore has not submitted to the king will be filled with holy dread. Because he's back. He is back in all of his glory. The king has returned. And what has led to all of this? Well, sin was defeated in the cross. Death was defeated in his resurrection. His enemies enemies destroyed by his second coming. And after his coming, he is granted authority everywhere except the Father himself. And what happens here now is breathtaking. And this is all leading up to this decisive moment And we pick it up now. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And now verse 28 gives a little more detail here. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, Christ, that God may be all in all. Did you hear what hap- what's happening? Christ returns, absolute authority, conquers all of his enemies. And then there is, on a cosmic, divine, glorious, heavenly scale, there is a gift that the Son gives to the Father. And that gift is this kingdom, which now is invisible and apparently weak in the world that we're in. Then it will be, it will fill the universe and every butt, every knee is going to bow to him. That perfected and restored and complete and glorious kingdom, paradise restored, creation completely purified and gloriously restored, the Son will somehow, and I don't get this part of it for sure, but somehow will give then to the Father this kingdom and then will himself bow in subjection to the Father. And the verse says the reason that he does that is so that God may be all in all. Which I think means this, that we get to the end of the story and we're right back to the beginning of the story. Because at the beginning of the story, God was all in all. And then we have all of the drama of all of this. And we get to the end and we're right back to God being all in all. That's the story of everything. It's a glorious story. And it's one, I think, that has profound implications for us here tonight. Two things that I want to highlight for you. And the first one I want to highlight by illustration. And go ahead and put that up, if you will. I have on the screen here, this is a picture of this service just a little bit ago during our our sort of music worship time. Are you looking? Okay. Now, what are you all looking for? We're all looking for ourselves, are we not? <laughs> Let's just say a collective amen. That's what we're doing. Hey, I think I see me there. I'm looking for me. We always do this with pictures. No group picture, Christmas picture, whatever. The first person we look at is us where am i in the picture similarly to say go ahead take it off thank you similarly to look into this picture and to say where am i in the story 
Because Christian, did you know that you're, you're in this story here? We are in the story. And you might be saying, oh, uh, where are we in the story? I didn't see my name anywhere. Did they mention me somewhere? Did I miss it? Am, am I, uh, you know, am I the enemy? No, I hope not. Okay. You're not God, the father, and you're not God, the son, and you're not the white horse. Okay. <laughs> so where are we in the story? And I've heard, I heard this years ago and it stuck with me and it's just an amazing thought. We are the gift. We're the gift. The son gives to the father the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is more than us, but it most certainly includes us. And not us like we are now, okay? Because we're still sinners and we got these bodies that are decaying and people die like Lottie did this last week in our church. This is a decaying, dying, we still feel the effects of sin in our life. It's not us like we are now that he gives to uh, the Father. It is the glorified and the resurrected and the purified bride, the beautiful church, the kingdom, us in all of our reflected glory that he has given, given to us. It is us as we were intended to be by God, holy and righteous, a people called by his name, the glorified, raised, eternal church that God the Son extends to the Father and says, this is how much I love you. Because that's what a gift is, is it? isn't it? It is, it is an expression of love. A symbol of love. Many of you probably have in your homes, you have little gifts that maybe dad or mom or, you know, friend or lover or somebody gave to you. You have it in the house. And whenever you see that gift, it makes you think of the person who gave it to you, right? Now think of this with me. For all eternity, God the Father is going to see us walking and running and dancing around in our glorified, resurrected bodies. And he's going to see it. And it will be an eternal reminder to the Father of how much the Son loves him. We are the gift. Now, I would also hasten to say this. Gifts have to realize that it's not about them. And this is why it is so small-minded to think that Christianity is all about Jesus loving me, which is true, it is true, but it is so much more than that. It's not about us primarily. We have the privilege of being a part of this glorious thing that God is doing. And when we get the big thing, it puts our little subplot of our church, of our families, of our ministries, of our own personal dramas that our own lives are experiencing today in its proper context. We kind of get it in light of the big story. Oh, how my son loves me. We're the gift. And the second thing I want to say is really a question. And here's the question. In light of what is going to happen, Are you presently today, tonight, in submission to the ruling, reigning king? Are you tonight? Now, this may mean for you the ultimate question in terms of who is your Lord, who who are you living for, who are you trusting in in terms of your life and your death and salvation, your faith. Is it Christ? And we celebrated communion tonight and we reenacted the drama of what Christ has done for us. And I can ask you that question. Have you submitted your life in faith to Christ? And if not, why not? And if not yet, why not tonight? To hear the big story and to see where this whole thing is going. And to recognize that Christ is king and he does love you. And he died for your sins. 
And if you will believe and trust in that truth and trust in him, your sins will be forgiven and you will be given life without end, eternal life. I feel a burden tonight for a different group here, though. And because let's just face it, let's just be honest. There's a whole lot of people who I think are trusting in Jesus and saying, oh, yes, he's the Lord of my, oh, yes, he's the Lord of my life. But in our hearts, we know there are vast areas of our life that we are not living in submission to the ruling, reigning king. And I'm talking to Christians here tonight, all right? If there is an area of your life that you are saying, that's mine, I will not submit that to the purposes of Christ and what he wants in my life. You are in defiance of the king. And you want to know what you, what's yours? Here's what you, what, what's yours is what you have in the end. And I just read what happens in the end, and God has everything in the end. So guess what? You don't have nothing. It's a mirage of self-control and autonomy that I can have this area of my life, and I'm going to do it the way I want it. And I don't care. I don't give a rip about what God thinks. And this is just so pervasive, and it's true in extent for all of us. And this is a call to see the glorified king and to recognize he has a rightful claim over my life, every nook and cranny of it. Because remember, Jesus is not going to let Satan have the final word over one inch of this universe. And that includes my heart and your heart tonight. And here now we live during the reign of the mediatorial king, which means that this is the time where we can willingly and gladly and in in an honoring way submit our hearts and lives to him willingly and gladly and bring glory to him. And that is the call to us as followers of Jesus is to lay down our lives, to seek first the kingdom of God, to live for the things above, not below. All of these texts that are calling us not to hiding and clinging and, and, and holding on, but to giving and surrendering and submitting our lives, all of it, to Christ. And are you here tonight with some category of your life that remains as yet not in subjection to the king? I put before you the glory of Christ, and I call you with love to surrender everything to the one who loves you and to the one who in the end rules and reigns. Recommit yourself today. Full surrender. Full surrender to him. Maybe even as I'm saying this, to be praying in your heart, God, that's what I want. That's what I want. I want my life to be all yours You're my king, king over all of it. Nothing hidden, nothing at all. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. In Bethel Church, that is the the cosmic gospel. It's the story of everything. Amen.